It's Midday Magazine for Wednesday, June 5th. I'm Shelby Herbert. The Borough Assembly approved a new collective bargaining agreement with the union representing Petersburg's municipal employees during its regular meeting on Monday. In a vote of 6-0, to zero, the Assembly passed the contract in its scheduled executive session, which was closed to the public. Mayor Mark Jensen was absent from the meeting. The biggest change to the bargaining agreement is that it eliminates step increases for wages. Those are the periodic increases in a government employee's salary from one wage to another. Employees will switch over to a longevity pay system instead. That means their wage increase will be based on how long they've continuously worked for the borough. Furthermore, the contract increases the amount of paid time off workers can collect past their fifth year of employment. And it raises the ceiling for the number of PTO days employees can accrue from year to year. The contract also includes one sanitation voucher and one harbor launch permit per calendar year for all borough employees covered by the agreement. The three-year contract will cost the borough just over $600,000, which is nearly $200,000 less than its last agreement ratified in 2021. A grand jury indicted three Sitkins last month on charges ranging from assault and burglary to driving a boat under the influence. Catherine Rose brings us this Sitka trial court roundup for the month of June. On June 21st, Sitka police arrested 30-year-old Jorge Ruiz Rivera for assault and burglary after the owner of a boat parked on Erler Street reported that he discovered Rivera on his boat without permission. When the boat owner told him to leave, Rivera allegedly pointed a handgun at him. During an investigation, Rivera returned to the boat and was arrested after he allegedly refused to follow police instructions. During the arrest, police confiscated a loaded Glock handgun from his boot. On June 29th, a Sitka grand jury indicted Rivera on one count each of assault in the third degree and burglary in the first degree, both felonies. He was also indicted on misdemeanor charges of criminal trespassing and criminal mischief. Earlier this month, on June 8th, Sitka police responded to a 911 call that a man was hanging off the side of a fishing boat in the Sitka Channel. According to court documents, 51-year-old Donovan Kintz was attempting to tie up his boat at the Sitka Sound Seafood Dock when he fell into the water. He was rescued by a good Samaritan. When police arrived on the scene, they found that Kintz was slurring his speech and unsteady on his feet. Kintz refused to provide a breath sample in the field. On June 15th, he was indicted for a DUI and refusing to submit to a chemical test, both felonies since he has two prior DUI convictions in Washington state. Finally, on June 1st, a Sitka grand jury indicted 38-year-old Robert Charles Somerville on one count of terroristic threatening in the second degree, a Class C felony. In late May, Somerville allegedly approached a former co-worker in his vehicle on Seward Street and threatened to harm him. As of press time, all three defendants are in custody at Lemon Creek Correctional Center in Juneau, with trial dates tentatively scheduled for August. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Catherine Rose. Climate change is changing the Gulf of Alaska, but in vast stretches of the ocean, a lack of data makes it hard for researchers to know how important species like salmon are handling that change. Now, 
two citizen science programs will shed some light on the topic with a fleet of southeast trollers whose fishing boats will double as research vessels. Anna Canny has more from Juno. Eric Jordan's life on the ocean began more than 70 years ago when his parents started taking him out on the family's troller. At 73, Jordan still fishes regularly out of Sitka, but he says a lot has changed in the waters of southeast Alaska. I was out there yesterday and seeing things that are truly dystopic. The lack of birds, the lack of fish in Salisbury Sound. Jordan started his own operation in 1978, trolling for coho and chinook. In those days, he'd catch thousands of fish. But today, the ocean seems less abundant. Those of us who are out there on the water, we are seeing the changes. And I'll tell you, it's pretty spooky. In recent years, most species of Southeast salmon have had record low harvests. And the devastation still lingers from a Pacific marine heat wave known as the blob that caused massive die-offs of marine animals. Scientists expect a future with warmer oceans and more marine heat waves that could rock the ocean ecosystem in southeast Alaska. But major data gaps make it hard for them to determine how changing conditions might threaten the health of important species like salmon. With two new citizen science programs from Alaska Sea Grant and the Alaska Troller Association, scientists will get a hand from some people who know the salmon best, southeast Alaska's troll fishing fleet. The first project will outfit boats with sensors to measure temperature and salinity. Tyler Hannon is an oceanographer at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. He says those two measurements are the heartbeat of the ocean. Figuring out how temperature and salinity change over time and space gives you some clues on how the water is circulating around southeast Alaska. Knowing how the water circulates gives scientists a better idea of how food is circulating, too. For instance, mixing ocean water triggers phytoplankton blooms. Which, of course, is the base of the food chain and sets off the production for all the higher trophic levels and fishing and all the things that we love. Fishermen will take measurements at different depths along their fishing routes. And over time, the data will form a baseline that will help researchers to determine what's normal and what might be linked to climate change. And for fishermen like Jim Moore, that data could add important context to decades of observations out on the water. People talk about, oh, my goodness, I've never seen that before. Well, I've been fishing 53 years. I saw that back in 1979. I saw it again in 1983. And, you know, the long-term data set is, is what's really valuable. Back in the 70s, he participated in a logbook program where fishermen studied salmon populations in the Gulf of Alaska. This spring, Moore and a select group of fishermen have relaunched the program electronically. They'll record things like the species and number of salmon they're catching, where they catch them, the size of the fish, and their stomach contents. Fishermen are natural scientists. And the trust built between management and science and, and the fishermen, I think, is, is a good thing because we're all working on it together. Back in Sitka, Eric Jordan will be testing out the logbook program on his boat this summer. And he says, for fishermen, collaborating with scientists is a long game. Trollers have a long history of standing up for salmon. And we are going to do that. Through these citizen science programs, Southeast troll fishermen can further solidify their role as environmental stewards. In Juneau, I'm Anna Canny. Skagway's railroad workers are voting on whether to authorize a strike. The workers' union says it's seeking wages that keep up with inflation, affordable health care, and no job cuts. 
As Katie Anastas reports from Juno, the dispute is playing out in the middle of a busy post-pandemic tourist season. The White Pass and Yukon Route is one of the most popular tourist attractions in southeast Alaska. The scenic and historic train ride runs from Skagway into Canada's Yukon Territory. It's the largest private employer in town. Engineers, conductors, and brakemen on the Alaska side are hoping to reach an agreement with White Pass that boosts wages and avoids job cuts. And this week, they're voting whether to go on strike if needed. Skagway Mayor Andrew Cremata says a strike could cause major disruptions for the cruise industry. More than half of the passengers that come through Skagway ride the train. And, you know, Skagway's history is uh, linked with the railroad. So, you know, losing operations on the railroad would definitely have a significant impact. Jason Geiler chairs the union that represents the workers. He says he's worried about permanent cuts to brakeman positions. Brakemen are one of the three workers on the train at all times. Having three people on board a train is critical when you're carrying, you know, 600 plus guests on board every single one of these trains that travel up and down the mountain on a daily basis. Even if the union votes to authorize a strike, it wouldn't happen right away. There are still several steps in the negotiating process that would have to happen first. The union's previous contract ended in 2017, and wages and health care costs are other key issues for the union as it negotiates the new one. Geiler couldn't share specifics on the wage increases proposed by both parties, but he says the union recognizes the company's lost profit during COVID. He says the union is strictly looking to increase wages to keep up with inflation. Mayor Cremata says that's important for Skagway residents. It's expensive to live here. Uh, the pandemic in the last couple of years, I've seen prices at the grocery store double, if not more. So it concerns me to think that, you know, people who live in this community may not be able to afford to live in this community anymore. White Pass is owned by an investment group that includes the Carnival Corporation and Ketchikan-based Survey Point Holdings. Executive Director Tyler Rose says he can't comment on ongoing negotiations. White Pass and Yukon Route is committed to working towards the resolution of these negotiations in the interest of all involved. The union is set to meet with company representatives and a mediator on Friday morning to continue negotiating. In Juneau, I'm Katie Anastas. Over the weekend, friends and family of Donald Sompy Elliott gathered in Bethel to celebrate his life. The Korean War veteran died in May. He was 88 years old. Five of his children were in town to remember their father, and Francisco Martinez Cuello brings us this audio postcard of their memories of him. Donald Eugene Elliott was born on December 24, 1934, in his hometown of Florence, Arizona. Sunday Hondel. Well, my dad, Sompi, was a wonderful dad. Um, I got to share his birthday all my life. I got to be his first daughter, so I adored and loved that man very much. Um, he's set groundwork for all of us to be hardworking people in our life and not to just take things, you know, for granted. Um, he was very compassionate and he was a great leader in our family. Um, him and my mom set a great example for us growing up. 
My name is Glenn Elliott. I am the uh, second uh, of six. I, I had an older older brother named Scott who um, had uh, died in a uh, air, airplane accident. Uh, my dad, he grew up um, without a father. He did not have a, a father figure in his life. So I think that made him the best father to me and to this community. He, he was a surrogate father to a lot of people. And I think when you don't have something, uh, you know what you're missing. And um, he made up for it by, you know, being a, a Boy Scout master and, you know, being a kind of a father figure to uh, like soldiers returning home from uh, foreign wars. It's Rebecca Malloy. Dad was really, really special to all of us. He, um, I just remember growing up and he was always very hands-on. Um, you know, we lived in a little one-bedroom house and, and then he built our big house. Dad was that he was like that, like he really built this Bethel community. Jill Hoffman. We are here today to celebrate my dad's um, service. Um, he passed away in May, and um, yeah, and he was a lifelong member of the VFW. He helped. Um, build Bethel to what it is today and we are honoring and celebrating his life today you know but I just I just want to talk about you know his contribution to Bethel to this VFW post he was one of the um, three charter members to get it built and 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 he was just one of the proudest veterans around Anna Bach. Okay, well, I'm the youngest of uh, Sompi's children, and um, he's uh, just, I think, a bit of a legend and an inspiring uh, community member that really just, I think, set the standard pretty high in terms of service to country and service to community and uh, a genuine love of uh, family and loyalty and friendship um it's really special to come and have his burial service here in bethel on the cusp of the fourth of july weekend um he would anytime he was here in bethel for the summer for the annual fourth of july parade he was perhaps one of the most patriotic people which um i think is just really important um you know for sake of our freedoms and uh it's sentimental to be here at the Robert V. Lindsay uh, post 10,041 because he's the last living charter member. For KFSK, I'm Shelby Herbert.